Good morning, friends. And uh, welcome to St. Matthew's. Uh, we all have our bad days, and uh, today the screen is having a bad day. Uh, we're trying to coax it out, out um, but uh, we're not, not yet seeing it, and so we're going to have to adapt and see how much of the well-known hymns uh, that we can read from the wall behind us. Can we manage that? It's a wonderful hymn to begin with. It's a hymn uh, which celebrates the beauty and diversity of all that God has made. So would you like to stand and we'll sing From All Who Dwell Below the Skies. the next one. Please take your seats. Uh, well, a warm welcome to you here at St Matthew's this morning, both to those of you who are here in the building and those who, of you who are joining us online. It's great to have you. And uh, for guests in particular, welcome. I understand we've got someone up from Melbourne and uh, another couple of folks down from uh, Queensland. Uh, so wherever you're joining us from, uh, it, a very warm welcome. For our guests, my name's Andrew Graham. I'm one of the ministers here. And uh, we do love having guests uh, with us. Uh, today we bring to a close, at least on Sundays, the series that's been running now for six Sundays and one midweek session and one more to come this week, uh, called Confronting Christianity. And our Senior Minister Bruce Clark will be bringing us the final Sunday talk on this. Does, does the Christian faith crush diversity? Uh, we're looking forward to that in a little while. And I'll let you know that after Bruce has spoken, uh, we'll have a, an open mic session, as we do from time to time. And the idea of the open mic session this morning is for you to share uh, something that may have struck you or have, uh, or have help, 
have struck you or helped you uh, in the course of this series. And just to jog your memories, here are some of the things that we've covered in this little series. We began with, six weeks ago, are we better off without religion? Then we followed with, are we, uh, sorry, should we take the Bible literally? And is, the, is God homophobic? Then we had a, a mid, midweek session on the Bible and gender, looking at transgenderism, before on Sundays we resumed with, would a loving God send people to hell? Is Christianity the only true religion? And does the Christian faith crush diversity? I've uh, consistently heard very positive uh, response to this little series as we've been seeking a compassionate and clear-headed response to the issues that confront Christians from our wider society. Uh, so there will be that opportunity for you to share um, straight after Bruce has spoken a little later in the service. But what we're going to do before we get to there is we're going to come before the Lord in prayer uh, with a series of prayers, beginning with a prayer of preparation and a prayer of confession. We'll read from Psalm 103 and then Pamela will lead us uh, in further prayers. So I invite you to join me now and I'm trying to work out how to do this. Would, would, would you, are, are you okay to turn around? Okay. Well, we'll all manage as we're able, and I'll lead us in this prayer of preparation. Almighty God, to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hidden, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. And then we'll pray this prayer of confession. And I'll give you a moment to prepare yourself as we together confess our sins. Okay, together. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we have gone our own way, not loving you as we ought, nor loving our neighbour as ourselves. We have sinned against you in thought, word and deed, and in what we have failed to do. We deserve your condemnation. Father, forgive us. Help us to love you and our neighbour, and to live for your honour and glory. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And then Psalm 103 is a very fitting psalm to follow a prayer of confession for those who trust in Jesus, especially when it gets to the point that it says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. So please join me in reading these ex excerpts of Psalm 103 together. Praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbour his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve, or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed, 
He remembers that we are dust. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, all his work, everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, my soul. Amen. Let us continue our time of prayer. Loving Lord, you are our creator, sustainer and redeemer. Help us to be thankful in all circumstances, giving you praise and glory for the goodness that you show us every day. We pray now for refugees and asylum seekers. We bring before you, Lord, all those who are refugees and asylum seekers throughout the world, particularly those from the Ukraine, whose physical, mental or spiritual welfare is under threat. Give to them a place of refuge. May they call out to you and find the rest, hope and peace that can only be found in the Lord Jesus. Gracious Lord, we pray that you would guide the ongoing development of ministry teams here at St Matthew's so that more and more of us are able to play our part in building the body of Christ, growing your church through the gospel. We especially pray for the new initiatives like The Scoop and On Board, which have been designed for those looking to make St Matthew's their church home that these will encourage more people to find a sense of belonging here at St Matthew's. As we pray for our church family, we particularly bring before you today our dear friend Di Pierce, who was readmitted to hospital yesterday with recurrent heart concerns. We ask Heavenly Father for wisdom and skill for the medical staff and peace for Di, John and the family. Please, dear Lord, restore Di to good health again. We pray this week for our mission partners, David and Michelle Fauchon, as serving with Serving in Mission. We join them in thanking you for an excellent annual conference recently. And we pray that David's team will represent SIM well at the upcoming conference on missions in Katoomba and also for good connections with stakeholders in Canberra during their visit at the end of September. We thank you, Lord, for the staff here at St Matthews, and we give you particular thanks for Willem Mako, our property manager, and for his 10 years of faithful service. Please keep him safe as he takes extended leave for seven weeks to visit family in Slovakia. We pray that he would be refreshed during his break from the routine and demands of work. And we pray too for the other admin staff that all will go smoothly in Willem's absence. And we give you thanks for church members who are stepping in to help clean and maintain our church while he is away. Loving Father, who has created us to know you and love you, to be in relationship with you, Hear our prayers in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Shall we join now in the words of the Lord's Prayer? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread 
and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen. In a short while we'll have our offertory hymn, but before then it's time for video news and uh, you choose whether you look, turn around and watch or watch it on the front. church news there's something for today there's something for the week ahead and something for the month of september so let's work back to front in september for our 8 a.m 10 a.m and 5 p.m congregations we're having the old dinners for eight back but restyling them as meals at st matt's because you don't need eight people or even an even number to have a nice meal together so here's the plan on the weekend of the 16th to 18th of September, we're hoping there will be people who want to have others from their congregation over for a Friday night or a Saturday night dinner or a Sunday lunch. And we're hoping that some of you will be interested in turning up to a lunch or dinner and bring something along to contribute. So after the 8am, 10am and 5pm services, today and for the next couple of Sundays, there'll be a sign-up sheet at the back of church. Nominate yourself as a host for a dinner or lunch or put your name down as a guest. And once folks have put their names down over the next three Sundays, we'll be in touch to let you know who you will be hosting or which place you'll be going to, depending of course on what you signed up for. And we'll let you know what uh, details about what to bring and so on. We really want people in our congregations to get connected and find fellowship around the simple but sacred art of breaking bread and enjoying food together. So sign up after the service to be a part of this. Well, in this week ahead, we're keen for you to join us at one of our midweek sessions that will kind of round out the Confronting Christianity series. This time the topic is the Bible and human life, which will give us a chance to think Christianly about start of life and end of life issues like abortion and euthanasia. There's often plenty of heat around these issues, but not always a lot of light. So Andrea or Andy Jansen and I would love you to join us as we aim to come up with a thoughtful, clear, and helpful response to these sensitive but vital human issues. So come along to one of the three sessions in the Darley Smith building. That's Tuesday evening the 30th of August from 7.45, Wednesday evening the 31st of August from 7.45, or Thursday morning the 1st of September from 9.30. And lastly, if you're new or kind of newish among us, we're hosting The Scoop today, right after our service. The Scoop is a short and sweet chance over a free scoop of gelato to find out more about St Matthews. It'll run for about 15 to 20 minutes and we'd love to see you there. And I hope you enjoy the rest of our service today. And now John Wood will have, a, a, um, have the folder with him. Uh, he'll be at the back of the church if you'd like to join in one of those meals that we're planning for that middle weekend of, um, of September. 
and he'll also be able to answer any questions. So if you're willing to host or you'd like to be a guest, please let him know. And he'll also be over at morning tea as well. Let's stand and, we sing, and, and sing together.
Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who'd been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they'd fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. And we come to our second reading, which is in Revelations 5, 1 to 14, and that's found on page 1,240 in the Bibles. 1,240, chapter 5, verses, starting at verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He's able to open the scroll and seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the centre of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The Lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he'd taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. <clears throat> then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands and thousands, and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped Yes. I know you are excited for last Sunday. 
this series and think about diversity. We do thank you for the way your people just reflect the incredible diversity of this world. And we thank you for the beauty in all the different peoples that you make. And may we rejoice in that and that we are united in Christ. And so, Father, help us to understand this as we come to your word today. In Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, if you can see on the wall behind me, there's a photo there. Now, even if you had the um, projector down, the screen down, I doubt you'd be able to identify this person. Um, just put your arms up if you know who Reverend William Walker is. Reverend William Walker. I suspect no one here probably knows of him. I didn't know about him until I did some reading this week. Uh, he was a Methodist minister from Britain uh, and he was appointed by the Wesleyan Methodist Missionary Society as the first ever official missionary to Aboriginal peoples here in Australia. And he came out in 1821. And in the official documentation of the time, it's recorded that he was appointed to the black natives of New South Wales. And he arrived from England into Sydney on the 16th of September, 1821, and he was aged at the ripe old 21 years old. And his ministry among the Aboriginal peoples of the day lasted only about three or four years. Now, Reverend Walker meant well in his endeavours, but in three separate ways, his missionary endeavours set a very negative tone for the many subsequent missions to the Indigenous peoples of this land of Australia. Reflecting commonly held views within the church at the time, Reverend Walker believed the following. Firstly, that Aboriginal peoples were supposedly descendants of Ham, uh, who was the son of Noah. And if you're not familiar with that story, uh, Ham was cursed by Noah, and as a result, all the descendants of Ham were also cursed. And at that time, people in Britain thought that basically applied to the people of southern Africa, anyone who was black, and of course, it must have included the Aboriginal peoples. And so the Aboriginal peoples, in his mind, were cursed and white people were superior to them. Secondly, Reverend Walker believed that one could not wander around and be a Christian. He believed that for the Aboriginals have, I quote, a senselessly bigoted attachment to the land on which they itinerated. Thirdly, Walker believed it was best to concentrate his efforts on the Aboriginal children. Why? Well, it was easier to teach Aboriginal children to read English than for them as missionaries to learn the languages of the Aora First Nation peoples that they were in contact with here in the Sydney Basin. So if you summed up the missionary posture of the first appointed missionary to the First Nation peoples of this land, it would be this. He believed that these black natives were not as good as the British. And so to become Christians meant to him becoming like us as Western Christians. And for that to happen, the indigenous peoples of the land needed to learn the English language, not the missionaries to learn theirs. In other words, you are below us, you need to become like us, and you need to come to us. Sadly, Reverend Walker's thoughts and methods were not unique and they were shared by numerous others in that day and age. Now, as you read about the history of missions to our Indigenous brothers and sisters in the land here, much of it 
makes awkward and uncomfortable reading. It's very uncomfortable to listen to that story, isn't it? And the book I've uh, quoted this from is Stuart Piggins' great uh, work on the history of evangelicals in the country, and he's got a lot of description about the missions to Aboriginal people, and much of it is actually quite awkward and very uncomfortable to read as we read about some of the appalling things done to them. And so today we're here on the last week of our Confronting Christianity series, and the confronting question we're looking at today is this. Doesn't Christianity crush diversity? And the story I've told you about in terms of the missionary endeavours amongst our Indigenous peoples of the land is sadly not unique. Uh, in the history of the Christian missions, too often, rather than bringing hope, life and spiritual liberation through the gospel, Western missionaries have unthinkingly sought to also, in their unspoken way, civilise groups of people with the gospel according to their cultural backgrounds and ideas. And it's stories like this one that give rise to the complaint that Christianity crushes diversity. We can't run away from it. There's enough fodder there in the history books for this to be a genuine complaint. And so the question we're going to ask this morning is, does Christianity crush diversity? It's a very important question to think about. And there's two key things I want to think about today, which is this, um, the diverse Christian church, and secondly, the most inclusive religion in the world. What is it? Well, firstly, the diverse, the, the diverse Christian church. And I've got up on the screen there uh, really what is a classic proof text for this um, theme of diversity, and it's from Galatians 3, verse 28. I'm going to read you the whole section from verse 26. Uh, because it's a very important text that undergirds this whole notion of diversity. Paul says in Galatians, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptised into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. And then he describes who the all of you are. And he says there's actually neither Jew nor Gentile, there's no racial distinction, there's neither slave nor free, there's no economic distinction, there's neither male nor female, there's no gender distinction, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And this one key text says to us that we are justified through faith in Christ. And it doesn't matter what your background that you come from, all of us, with all of our diversities, find our unity in Christ. And it's a beautiful diversity amongst God's family through what Jesus has done for us in his death and resurrection. Now, what I want us to do is stop and just think about how this played out in the history of the early church. As you read through uh, the book of Acts, it's fascinating what you see as well as what you see the picture of the new creation is. And what I've got is three little snippets from church history. And if you've got your Bibles there, that first reading, you might wonder why were we reading about this little um, famous but short reading about a prayer meeting in the church in Antioch. Well, if you're not familiar with the church in Antioch, it's the first non-Jewish church. And worshipping there were both Jewish people and Gentile people together for the first time. Uh, it had been planted by not apostles but by lay people. And they'd taken the gospel there up north of Israel to Gentile territory and many had come to faith, not just Jewish people, but also 
non-Jewish people, the Gentiles. And we've got this little description here in Acts 13, verses 1 and 2, of who the early church at Antioch's leadership team was. And it's a fascinating little group of people. Uh, it talks about, firstly, Barnabas. Now, Barnabas is your quintessential man from headquarters, uh, the Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas because he was the son of encouragement. He's the insider, if I could put it that way, that's come from Jerusalem. Uh, the second person is Simeon, called Niger. And Bible commentators believe that he was a dark-skinned, North African proselytite to Judaism who was quite possibly the Simeon who carried the cross for Jesus at his crucifixion. And so here you've got uh, Barnabas, the Orthodox Jewish convert, and you've got um, Simeon, who's from North Africa, an African man. And then you've got Lucius of Cyrene, and he was probably a Greco-Roman from North Africa. And then fourthly, and this is the most fascinating one, is Mannion, who'd been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. And when it says he'd been brought up, he would have been an Hellenized Jewish aristocrat, and his name is the, in the Greek form of the Hebrew Mahenahem. And when it says he was brought up with Herod, it most likely means that he was the foster brother of Herod. Now, this is Herod who slayed John the Baptist. And he would have grown up in Herod's palace. He's a complete outsider. <laughs> the antithesis of what the Jewish people stood for. And then lastly, and ironically, you've got Saul, the Tarsus-born Jew raised in Jerusalem and otherwise known by his Greco-Roman name, Paul. He was formerly the great persecutor of the Christian church who used to despise non-Jews. And here they are, all together. It is the most profound and odd mix of people that you could find in a leadership team in the early church. North African, aristocrat, headquarters, the opposition, they're all in together. And you see that's the diversity of the church. And it's what the gospel does. It brings people together from all backgrounds because God has no blinkers uh, in terms of who he sees and who he saves. Racially, economically, spiritually, socially, as diverse a group you could find in the first century. And that's what the gospel of our Lord Jesus does. The second story uh, we looked at last year, and I thought it was such a good story, it's worth revisiting on this occasion as we think about does the Christian faith crush diversity and if you were listening I think this was online during lockdown um, I remember preaching on Acts 16 and the church at Philippi and it, it's always struck me because of the diversity you find in the way the gospel works when Paul planted the church at Philippi uh, there are three people that are mentioned in the story of the planting of the church two are women one one's male the first one is Lydia and she was an upper-class, wealthy businesswoman. And we read in verse 14 of Acts 16 that one of those listening, this is to Paul, who is sharing the gospel, was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshipper of God, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. And she is the first, lady who, uh, first person in Philippi who comes to faith, and she says, "'If you consider me a believer in the Lord,' Come and stay at my house. 
And the church then begins to meet at her place. Now the second person who uh, we understand came to faith is a lower class slave lady who was spiritually oppressed. The exact opposite. Lydia was a spiritual seeker who was attaching herself to the Jews. This is a woman who is in the marketplace and is a slave and is possessed by a demon. And in verse 16 of Acts 16, it says, Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. Now, I won't read the whole narrative, but Paul ministers to her. The demon, uh, the spirit is cast out. And the understanding of Bible commentators is she would also have joined this new group of believers. Complete opposite end of the spectrum to Lydia. And then the third story is of the jailer who comes to faith. Now, he would have been an apathetic Greco-Roman man, working class, possibly a former Roman soldier. He's converted because of his watching of Paul's experience of faith of singing with joy even though he'd been beaten and was wounded and the way Paul looked after him by not running away at the end of that story it's worth reading again if you're not familiar with it the famous words he says are sirs what must I do to be saved he is so convicted that Paul knows the God of salvation that he falls at his knees and wants to know what he can do to be saved and Paul leads him to Christ and you got these beautiful words at the end of uh, the chapter it says after Paul and Silas came out of prison they went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them and you've got this incredible picture of diversity there of the upper class businesswoman who is hosting the meeting the slave girl who's been exercised of the spirit, the Greco-Roman soldier, ex-soldier, prison guard, who's now joining together, and they together, along with Paul and his apostolic band, make up this church. They are as diverse a group, again, as you could find. And this is the experience that you read of as you read through the book of Acts, uh, the gospel keeps reaching anyone and everyone. And it produces this incredible, beautiful diversity. And so it's no surprises when you get to the end of the New Testament and you get the book of Revelation. And chapter 5 um, and chapter 4 are this window into heaven. Uh, John is in this vision, seeing this vision and heaven opens. And he gets to see what is happening in heaven as he's experiencing the persecution on the ground in his own day and age. He gets to look up and see, actually, this is the reality in heaven. And they're beautiful words that were read to us by Brenda. Who is worthy? Well, it's the lamb who was slain. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchase for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. Jesus' death was for the world. And he purchased people from across the world. And I love the description. It's trying to, in as few words possible, say this death was for everyone. It's every tribe. It's every language. It's every people. It's every nation. 
And the book of Revelation tells us that they are all there in heaven, united by one thing, the Lord Jesus, who they were all praising because what of he had done for them. The message of the gospel is unique and it's absolute. It's about one person and one God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he came for everyone. And everyone, no matter what their background, finds their hope and love and security in him. And that's what you see in the New Testament. The Christian church does not crush diversity. The Christian church is diversity (laughs) because it's founded on a message which welcomes anyone and everyone. Well, that's the diverse Christian church. What is the reality in history. Whoop, I've just jumped ahead. Let me just read what I've got on the screen. It's a thesis. If Jesus was right in saying he is the only one for the world, and that's what he did say, and we saw that last week with Nathan's wonderful message, that he is the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to the Father. Well, if he is saying he's the only one for the world, then what you would expect to see then reflected historically is that in world history. Does that make sense? You would expect to see that he is leading the religion that basically spans all of the world's history. And religions in the world historically have typically excluded people, not included people. Let me explain that. Religions historically exclude people, not include people. Because what they've said is, if you want my religion, you have to become culturally like me. And guess what? Christianity is the only worldwide religion that is actually inclusive and diverse. So there's a scholar, his name is Richard Borkham, and uh, he's written a book called Bible and Mission. Now, Richard's written all sorts of stuff. He's got commentary. He's got one of my favourite books about the um, reliability of the New Testament. He's also written this book on Bible and Mission. And in his book, in Bible and Mission, he points out that most world religions have most of their followers close to where the religion began. So think with me about this. Uh, where are most of the adherents of Islam? They are in the Middle East and Asia. Where are most of the adherents of Buddhism? They are in Southeast Asia. Where are most of the adherents of Hinduism? They are in India. Now, why is that? Because inevitably, the religion and the culture actually can't be separated. There's a whole way of life culturally that's been wrapped up religiously in how you practice your beliefs. So let me show you some stats that he uh, puts in the book. 90% of all Muslims live in one part of the world, which is what they call the 40-20 window, the Middle East, North Africa, Southeast Asia. Now, while it is penetrating to some extent, uh, the northern and southern hemispheres, it basically runs along the equator. 88% of Buddhists live in East Asia and 98% of Hindus live in India. Effectively, to be Hindu is to be Indian. 
But with the Christian faith, it's the exact opposite. It's fascinating. Christians, 25% live in Europe. 25% live in Central or Southern America. 22% live in Africa. 15% live in Asia and 13% live in North America. Now, isn't that a fascinating reflection? Let me go back to that saying. If Jesus was right in saying that he is the only one for the world, then you would expect to see that reflected historically within the world's history. And that's exactly what we see taking place. Richard Borkham says this, Christianity is the only major religion that has spread out. Almost certainly, Christianity exhibits greater cultural diversity than any other religion. Let me sum it up this way. The biblical witness is that the early church was incredibly diverse and the historical witness is that the church is incredibly diverse. <laughs> That's world history. It's also the New Testament. The gospel doesn't crush diversity, it actually promotes it. I had a lovely conversation with our music director, Dave Endoamani, yesterday. And I just said to him, Dave, what do you like about our music? <laughs> do you actually like the hymns? And he said, I love the hymns. He said, I love the theology of the hymns. I love the fact that they're so easy to sing. And he just raveled on about a number of things about the hymns that we love. he loves. And I thought, you know... We love his music because he brings this joy that, look, seriously, I don't mean to be racist here, but us white people just don't have. <laughs> there is something about the way Africans do music and praise and joy that is infectious. And we love it, don't we? And we are richer for it. In the same way David is richer for what he has experienced. And this is the beauty of diversity. We actually learn stuff from each other in our diverse backgrounds. And it's why diversity needs to be celebrated. And it's such a rich part of the Christian church. That we have people of different backgrounds who have different experiences and we can value them and learn from them. And the question I have for us this morning is, um, are we a diverse church? Because it strikes me that when the gospel is most powerfully at work, it changes our perception of other people. And rather than seeing whether people are like us or not, we see that everyone is actually someone made in the image of God whether they are like us or not. And we value them. And we want them to know about what we know about in terms of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we find brothers and sisters who may be different to us but yet have Christ, we discover this incredible friendship in the gospel and unity that we have. And a healthy church is actually a diverse church. Because you can see the power of the way the gospel is working by the diversity of the people it is drawing.
And you see, God will work through us and when we are most alive in him, we will become most diverse in our experience. Because we won't have racial, racial or cultural barriers at work in us. And if you go back to that text from Galatians, we are male, neither male nor female, rich nor poor, black nor white. We are one in Christ. And that's the mindset that we need to have. A healthy church is a diverse church. It's young and old, it's black and white, and every share of colour in between. It's rich and poor, it's upper class and lower class, it's Labour voter and Liberal voter. And the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is the only power that I know of in the world that creates that kind of unity. As you think about these important questions, I want to finish by thinking about the mistakes that our forebears made with missions to our First Nations people. Why did it occur? Well, it occurred because the early Christian missionaries confused the gospel with Western culture. Instead of a person entering into a culture and telling the story of Jesus in the ideas of the people they were seeking to reach, they said, come to us, become like us, we will tell you about Jesus in our language. But what I told you at the beginning of the message about Indigenous mission in Australia is not the only story to tell about missionaries seeking to reach the Aboriginal peoples of this land and hearing the gospel and our Indigenous brothers and sisters coming to faith in Christ. Thankfully, there were a few more thoughtful and less judgmental dissenting voices in the history of our nation and the history of mission here in the country. Over time, as missionaries started to listen and understand the Aboriginal people's story, they came to see that this was a people group who were in the land long before Jesus was born. They understood that these Aboriginal peoples were here before Abraham, they were here before Moses, yet they retained a knowledge of God. Like all of us flawed human beings, they forgot some things, they distorted other things, but through all those thousands of years, they'd never forgotten that there was a God who had created them and the world in which they lived. And the interesting thing is one of the great missionary writers, John Harris, who wrote the seminal work One Blood, said they did not need to be told there was a God, they already knew that. But like all of us, they needed to hear about Jesus. They needed to hear of Emmanuel, God with us, the one to whom their Old Testament pointed. They needed to come to his cross to receive forgiveness for sins and his resurrection to receive eternal life. And instead of thinking that the Aboriginal people were below them and needed to become like them as white Western colonisers, they instead started to love them and go to them and sought to communicate the gospel in their languages. And here is one great story to finish with that communicates this about the missionaries who knew that about God's people and that they needed to go and reach them on their terms. In North Australia in 1942, missionary and Bible translator Len Harris, the father of John Harris, the author of One Blood, with two talented Aboriginal women, now forgive my pronunciation, 
Badichjani and Grace Yimabu translated the Gospel of Mark into the Waboi language of the Nungaboyu people. At night times, Len Harris would often read these translated stories about Jesus to them over a campfire. One night, the great Nungaboyu leader, Madi Maranguyung, got up from the fire and quietly disappeared into the night. That night, Maddie began the walk back to his own country, the Nanunguyu heartland around Rose River, 300 kilometres north. When he reached there, Maddie brought 60 people. They took a fleet of dugout canoes and they went on a two-week journey back down the coast and up the Roper River, back to where Len Harris was at his mission station. These are Len Harris's words as to what took place. Glimpsing Maddie in the firelight, I held up my handwritten sheets of paper that he translated Mark's gospel onto into the language of the people. Anna Balaman, Anna Walu, I said, the good story. Uwe, Ibadigilu, Marty replied, yes, it is true. 60 people emerged from the shadows to crowd around the fire. Maddie had brought them to hear the good news of Jesus Christ in their own language. Urged by the people, I read it over and over again, long into the night. Eventually, Maddie came forward and asked to hold in his hands the leaves I had written on. I knew he could not read. Ijibulu, he said again, it is true. He used to think Jesus was only a white man's God, he said. But now he understood that Jesus was, the own, was also the God of black people as well. Len Harris asked him what had convinced him that the life of Jesus was true. He looked down at the sheets of paper and looked up at me again, his eyes bright in the firelight. Now I know that Jesus speaks Wabuyu, his language. The missionaries thought well of them, they went to them, they learnt their languages, they became like them. They recognised the beauty and the diversity of the Aboriginal peoples of this land and they celebrated it and they brought the gospel to them. The Christian faith doesn't crush diversity, my friends, it celebrates it. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the way this message, this one message about your son has travelled across cultures, languages, people groups, nations. We've received it here in Australia and we just rejoice in that, that there is one saviour for the world who we know and his name is Jesus, the name above every other name. And we just give you praise for him this day. In his name we pray. Amen.
Just, um, just while you're thinking, I might pass on one thing that has been very helpful to me through this series. I think one of the most challenging things we've faced is the, the change in attitudes to gender and sexuality in our society. Uh, most recently, the prominence of transgenderism. And it, it was um, actually a, a, um, a seminar that a number of the staff went to in preparation for this series, where I just heard, heard the, the distinction made uh, between the person who suffers from the, the awful malady of being so uncomfortable with their body that we would describe them as having gender dysphoria. Uh, a man, for instance, who feels uncomfortable within his body and, and feels more like a woman. Um, the contrast between the compassion that we ought to be showing to someone who lives with such a such terrible, um, uh, in such a terrible situation, and the person who is peddling the ide ideology of transgenderism, which is doing so much damage in our society, particularly to younger people. And so the, the distinction between the compassion to show for someone who is suffering and the really stern and clear-minded response we have to those uh, who are doing such damage in our society, I found that helpful uh, in seeking a clear mind and a compassionate heart. Is there anything else that anybody else uh, would like to share uh, coming out of this series, which has covered so many areas, uh, gender and sexuality, um, today we've been looking at the issue of diversity. Another one, the um, how seriously we're to take the Bible in, its, in, in literally reading it. Is there anyone else who has anything to share? A couple of people have scratched their foreheads and that sort of thing. I'd wondered whether your hand was going up. John. Thanks, Deborah. Uh, Deborah will bring a, a mic for you. I could have done that. <laughs> Thanks, Deb. Okay, great. Um, I've just thought as we've explored all of these issues, the, the one passage that leapt into my mind was when Jesus stood outside Lazarus's tomb and it was the shortest passage in the Bible, one a good memory verse, Jesus wept. Yeah. And I think that his compassion and his heart for humanity, and mm. it's a different form of suffering. But I think what I've really learnt in this last couple of months is that we ought to have hearts like Christ. Our heart mm. should weep for people who are caught up in mental illness or, or gender dysphoria or, mm. or lifestyles that we don't approve of. We can't be judgmental. We have to get alongside people and, and have a capacity to love people in the way that Jesus did. And that's the, the heart of the church and that's the heart of what what we've been taught over these last few months and that's what's really struck me about this this period. Thanks John. Okay, if there's no other comments, we'll sing. Would you like to stand and we'll sing together? Oh! 
Just as we close, I'll remind you that there'll be an opportunity to sign up for one of the dinners for eight, one of the meals. Uh, we're planning for September 16, 17, 18, I think the dates are. And uh, I'm going to hand this to John Wood, who'll be at the back door, uh, for those of you who need to leave uh, straight away. Otherwise, um, he'll come around and see you at the tables at uh, over morning tea. As we finish, uh, hear these words of encouragement from the letter of Jude. To him who is able to keep us from falling and to present us before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Saviour, be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord, before all ages, now and forever. Amen. Amen.
Thank you, are you? Yeah, good. 